and welcome. It is the Eric Erickson Show here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of this here program, is, what is it? 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. It is the big news in our household. I, I'm telling you, it is, it is the thing. Hang on a second. What am I talking about? Well, my friends, Taylor Swift has released a new album. It is, it, it's a big deal for our household because I have a 14. Do you know I've been to three concerts in my life? I grew up in Dubai. We didn't have many opportunities. I've been to the opera before. I've been to the Vienna, Vienna Boys Choir, but I've never had the real uh, an opportunity for live music. My buddy Chris Burns, who fills in for me from Dynamic Money, uh, he is insistent that when this whole virus thing goes away, that he and I are going to go to a, a concert of my choosing. I want to go see Pearl Jam. Uh, Judy and the Lion, uh, Mumford and Son, something, uh, something. I, you know, I'm I I like alt rock. I, I take that back. I've been to four concerts now. I, I have taken my daughter to see Taylor Swift twice, and I've taken her once to see Adele, and I've taken my wife to Las Vegas to see ZZ Top before. Uh, when they the last last January, that was her Christmas present two years ago. Was this past January? My wife is not a big fan of Las Vegas, but she wanted to go see ZZ Top, their 50th anniversary concert. It kicked off in Las Vegas, so we went. That's it. Uh, and and I guess at some point when this virus goes away, we will again uh, decide to uh, get out and about, and we will go see a Taylor Swift concert. I'm sure my daughter and I. Unlike her last album, which was too woke for any of us uh, and didn't do well, this one actually, she's, it sounds like a return to her roots. She actually has some potty mouth in, in parts of it, more so than her last album. But nonetheless, I'm sure you weren't here for the Taylor Swift update. I just, I needed to share because, hey, if it's big news in the Erickson household, it is big news for you guys. <laughs> um, so let me play you an, a piece of audio from MSNBC to kind of set the table where we are today. Listen to this. Voice, Vance. Mika, we have a lot going on today. Oh, my gosh. Well, we'll uh, <laughs> look at the coronavirus case numbers that are climbing. The U.S. has reached another record, 4 million infections recorded. Health experts warn that the virus is spreading rapidly. It was just over two weeks ago that the U.S. had hit three million cases. So something big is happening here. In certain areas of the country uh, are the coronavirus hotspots of the world, not just of the country. Plus, President Trump abruptly cancels the Republican National Convention in Jacksonville, Florida. Remember, he went there uh, taking it away from North Carolina, saying we, we, we can we can leave it there. Um, the, the case spike. The U.S. has reached four million uh, cases of COVID-19. I, I this is I don't think this is good reporting at this moment. And And listen, reporters across the nation, including at your local radio station, are fixated on the number. And, and I, I got to agree that some level of coverage of the number does make relevant sense. Four million people have it. Uh, but in large part, it's because of testing. We know this because of testing. Uh, what the media really should be focused on, I think, at this point is the percentage of positive cases. Because the testing, I mean, just take Georgia, for example. Uh, Brian Kemp cut a deal 
with a pharmaceutical company out of North Carolina that can increase our testing in the state by an additional 10,000. So Georgia is now doing 40 to 50,000 tests a day. Florida is doing up to 200,000 tests a day. Uh, And as the massive testing increases, we find more cases. Uh, And this has been a ramp up over the last month. That's why we went, it took us a month to go from 2 million to 3 million cases and only two weeks to go from 3 million to 4 million. It did not have to do with the massive increase in the growth of the virus. In fact, we're plateauing again in this country. What it had to do with actually is a um, is is an increase in testing. Uh, in Georgia, for example, uh, we've been able to increase the testing capacity pretty significantly, as I mentioned. And what we're starting to see in Georgia is again a decline in the uh, in in the false or in the in the positivity rate. Uh, the data in Georgia actually looks very good for us. Uh, we are at least plateauing. In fact, I gave you the high the other day was uh, was f- what five thousand one hundred eighty four cases. The at the end of the fourteen day moving average, we have arrived at three thousand ninety three cases. The next big spike comes July thirteenth. Now, the way the fourteen day moving average goes is is you look fourteen days back to see where we are. Um, but when you cross over it, you get three thousand five hundred twenty nine cases. We're not seeing substantial spikes enough that uh, even the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlanta Journal, and uh, other major media outlets are having to f- uh, notice that Georgia has plateaued again. Now there are certain areas of the state where the virus is going up, but in urban areas, the virus is going down. This comes was as more people are wearing masks, more people are, are reducing going out again. We haven't shut down businesses again, but people are reducing going to businesses. Well, take a place like Las Vegas. Las Vegas is recording a thousand cases a day right now, uh, and it's out of control. And they've had to shut back down bars. And uh, the number of people who are getting the virus has actually gone down uh, among older people, among 30 and older, and it's increasing uh, in the 18 to 30 bracket. And the reason is because bars and nightclubs in Las Vegas reopened and people are hanging out. They're worried about it happening again in New York City. In New York City, there's uh, big street parties. The, The governor of New York has banned the selling of wings and beer in New York City, believe it or not. Uh, in New York now, if you want to sell alcohol, you've got to sell food, uh, but you can't, uh, wings and beer is not included. I, 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 this is this is anti-American at this point. In California, the same rule is now applying that if you want to, if you want to, if you want to grab a drink at a bar, the bar has to serve you food and it has to be substantial food. It can't be an appetizer. It can't be wings. It can't be finger food. It can't be cheese sticks. It can't be potato skins. Uh, it, it's got to be substantial food, food that come that you re- require silverware. It's ridiculous. And they're grasping at straws to try to contain it again. And it has everything to do with young people and protesters. Uh, at this point, it doesn't have to do with, with um, uh, middle-class Americans going to jobs. Uh, it, it is, for example, safe for people to go to Las Vegas depending on where you stay and and the and and whether or not you're filled your hotel's filled up with young people. It's safe to fly again in this country. In fact, I talked to someone who would know yesterday. Uh, Delta engages in heavy contact tracing, and they can't find people on their flights who have the virus or or have spread the virus. There were three people a couple of weeks ago on Delta who had the virus. 
and they uh, had the virus apparently before they got on the plane. They wore masks. Everyone else around them wore masks. Uh, they can't find anyone who got the virus from them. None of the people who surrounded these people on the plane tested positive. And Delta, in fact, is socially distancing everyone on their planes. That matters. They're mandating masks and, and socially distancing. Uh, middle seats are empty. They're, they're randomly uh, assigning seats based on how people book. They're shutting off rows around them. It makes sense to do it in that way. Uh, and a lot of people aren't flying. Now, there are. there's also new data on things that you can do to minimize the virus. For example, vitamin D, not vitamin D supplements. And, and there's been a lot of misreporting here. Vitamin D is shown to help boost your immune system and help you uh, fight off viruses. And there's now a lot of research that's come out in the last couple of months that shows people who have higher vitamin D counts are people who do better fighting the virus. Now, I I said don't take a supplement. Sunshine. Get outside. Uh, people who have been cooped up inside hiding from the virus, not going outside and getting sunshine, their body has reduced vitamin D, and ironically, that then puts them at higher risk for the virus. So if you get some sunshine on you, your immune system gets boosted. The other thing that there's more and more data showing that a zinc supplement actually works. You know, when you when you find a cold, and, and by the way, if you're a longtime listener to this program, you know I'm I'm not big into homeopathic treatments and whatnot. Uh, I realize in some cases they work, but I think a lot of them are, are uh, psychosomatic. Zinc is shown to work to reduce uh, the strength of colds and other viruses. And increasingly, there's data showing that if you take zinc supplements, in fact, it's flying off the shelves at uh, at uh, local stores, CVS and Walgreens, they're having a hard time keeping it in stock. You got to order it online. But zinc helps boost your immune system. And interestingly enough, there is some uh, reporting out of Minnesota, a controlled study that people who've been taking zinc supplements, now it's a small pool of people, which is why it's not a big study, but people who take zinc who are then, they get the virus and are administered hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. The hydroxychloroquine helps the zinc get into your cells faster, uh, which helps uh, crowd out the virus, so to speak. I, I Listen, I'm not a scientist. I don't know how to explain this in scientific terms, but essentially zinc slows down the rate at which a virus can penetrate your cells and spread. Hydroxychloroquine makes it easier for the zinc to penetrate your cells, so then it makes it easier for the zinc to get in and prevent the virus from spreading. Uh, this works with the cold, it works with the flu, it works with pneumonia, uh, and now there's increasing data out there that shows that it also will work with this. Uh, increased vitamin C also works, uh, but again, the key here is natural sources, not supplementation. There's actually a growing body of data out there that, um, like for example, probiotics, uh, a lot of people take probiotics, we take them in our house, and there's actually a growing body of, of research out there that they don't actually work in most cases, uh, that the people that they do work for is, is actually a smaller number than the people who think they work for them, uh, and that by and large, it's just uh, pseudoscience. There's also a growing body of evidence that a lot of uh, tablets that you take uh, for vitamins don't actually do a good job uh, if they are hard tablets. If they are liquid gels, they do a little bit better of absorbing. But by and large, like your, your big multivitamin that you may take, your body may wind up pooping most of it out, uh, to be frank with you. So it, there are things you can do to minimize your risk. There are things you can do to minimize symptoms. But ultimately, it still comes down to the basics of socially distanced. Don't go into crowds, wear a mask, and wash your hands. Washing your hands is actually key. By the way, I found Purell last night at a Walgreens. 
I didn't buy it all. They had a bunch and, and there was no limit and I was tempted to buy it all, but I decided I'd be nice and not. Um, but I, I wanted to buy a couple couple for me, couple, and they're the little two ounce bottles. I was able to get them. Uh, and, you know, in, increasingly, it's kind of crazy. Uh, I, I have friends of mine who are very adamant that hand sanitizer doesn't fight this virus. Actually, all of the research going back to February has shown that uh, alcohol actually kills this virus quicker than anything else. With bleach, it can take a minute for the virus to die. With alcohol, uh, ethyl alcohol, it, it happens almost instantaneously. It happens in under 10 seconds. Uh, so the key here, though, is remember that keep it get, get your hands covered in the hand sanitizer, and it actually works. Uh, it it does actually work. It's harder and harder to find. The higher the alcohol content, the better it is. There are some uh, hand sanitizers out there. You got to look. It, it needs to be, I think, sixty nine percent, sixty five percent alcohol in your hand sanitizer. Don't buy the alcohol free hand sanitizers. They're not going to fight off the virus. Uh, Purell does a very good job, though. Uh, now, the reason I bring all of this stuff up is there appears to be a global rebound in the virus. You know, uh, the media has been bad-mouthing the president of the United States, saying that the uh, the president's doing a terrible job compared to everyone else. Uh, the president really has limited police power in the country. It's kind of ironic. They're pointing out in the media that the president really doesn't have the power to send federal troops in other than to protect federal property. Uh, he's overplaying his hand otherwise in these states, and yet they think he can impose a national mask mandate, which several months ago they were saying he couldn't. They think he's a tyrant, and then they say, well, he can't. He doesn't even have the power to impose a national mask mandate. But it's all his fault anyway. The double standard. Well, uh, new cases are starting to spread in Australia, in Spain, uh, in, uh, in Japan, and in Hong Kong. The cases are beginning to spread again. In fact, Hong Kong is starting to lock back down. Australia is considering the parts of the country are going to have to lock down. Spain released people, and it overwhelmingly it's young people. Overwhelmingly, in every country right now uh, where the virus is on uptick, including places here like Florida, Nevada, uh, Arizona, Georgia, Texas, California, it's mostly young people who are going to bars and not socially distancing who are now the carriers of the virus, spreading it back into their homes, getting their parents sick because they all live in their mom and dad's basement. Uh, they're the ones who are the, the chief transmitters of the virus right now. It's not nursing homes anymore. Now they respond better. They, they tend to recover better. Uh, there are less deaths in that pool of people, but they spread it to older people who then, uh, are impacted. So other countries now are having to shut back down. You would think it's a, a uniquely American phenomenon and it's not. In fact, uh, Brazil, India, Panama, uh, and uh, there was one other country in the list, and now I can't remember what it was, um, are doing worse than us in terms of the virus right now. But again, key point here before I go to commercial break, you're hearing a lot today that the United States has crossed 4 million people with the virus. And only two weeks from when we set the 3 million record. I need you to understand we are not seeing exponential growth in this country right now of the virus. We're seeing exponential growth of the testing, and that is why the numbers look as bleak as they do. And, of course, the media can't put that in proper context because it would suggest that the federal government is actually doing something competent, and they can't give any credit to Donald Trump. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You know, if you're going to copy, uh, copy from the best. And, you know, Rush does Open Line Friday. And in my evening show, we've kind of been doing this Ask Me Anything Friday. 
in, in tribute to Rush. And I guess we'll deploy it here as well if anybody needs to call in or has a desire to call in about anything we're not necessarily talking about today. You're more than welcome to. Uh, on Friday, that's your option, 877-973-7425. Baseball is back. It started, yes, there were some knees taken and there are no fans, uh, but the game, y'all, is back. Sports are coming back. And I had, did, did you see Anthony Fauci? Did, did you see Fauci? Uh, y'all, listen, I, someone is someone I know said it best last night. He kind of likes that uh, the nation's leading expert on epidemiology who whispers in the ear of the president uh, is really good at his job, so much so that he's really bad at baseball. <laughs> Let's see. Anthony Fauci put a whole new meaning on flatten the curve last night when he threw that ball. <laughs> Yo, okay. All right. Um, uh, for those, this, this is radio. I, I can't show you. I should pull up the video for the live stream. I won't, for those of you who can't, can't see it yet. Picture your baseball field. You have the pitcher. And straight in front of the pitcher, you have the batter. And you have the, the catcher and the umpire. From the pitcher's perspective, out to the left is first base. Anthony Fauci stands on the pitcher's mound. And all he's got to do is throw straight in front of him to the catcher who awaits his ball. And he winds up and he throws almost to first base. (laughs) I mean, it's like halfway between home plate and first base. The ball goes. And of course, the announcers, it's Anthony Fauci. And they're trying to Anthony Fauci with the first pitch. And he throws. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health and the president. They just completely ignored the fact that he 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 killed a pigeon between home plate and first base. <laughs> it was oh, it was I felt bad for the guy. If you it, listen, at least he's been so busy he hasn't had time to practice. We we can give him credit for that, I guess, but man, if if you're gonna I'm sorry, if you're gonna throw out the first pitch, please try. I mean, I'm I'm not great at throwing, and, and there's a distance. You get up on the pitcher's mound, there is a distance between home play. You're, you're thinking of your kid's little league. This is professional sports. There's actually a significant distance between home plate and uh, the, the pitcher's mound, and if you throw it hard, you tend to have less control over it because you, wa- you want to get it to home plate, mind you. You, you do want to get it to home plate. Anthony Fauci didn't get it anywhere near home plate. It was like he was aiming for Florida and wound up in Hawaii. Uh, my goodness. Um, with aim that bad, I, I don't know if he has kids. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll stop. I'll, I just, wow. I just, I was expecting better. I actually, I showed my 11-year-old who loves baseball, and, and he he got a, got a face palm. <laughs> <laughs> I explained who he was and I said, you know, it's probably a good thing that poor Dr. Fauci is, is that, um, unable to throw that straight. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> okay. When we come back, the Republican convention has been canceled in Jacksonville. They will do the, the pro forma convention in Charlotte, North Carolina, where they were originally going to do it. Uh, they've otherwise canceled it. The president just said with, with the virus and, and all that, uh, that's spreading in Florida, 
was worth it. You know, the Jacksonville area is actually doing well. The Jacksonville area is always largely done well. In fact, remember when the, the media was attacking Jacksonville for the massive numbers of people on the beach in Jacksonville? They had 30 people in the hospital in all of um, that area of Florida. Nor, nor, what is it? Is Northwest Florida? Northeast Florida? They had only 30 people in the hospital with COVID-19 uh, when the media was attacking them. And they're actually doing well. The data in Northwest East Florida, the Jacksonville, Amelia Island area actually isn't bad, but uh, the the hotels wanted four-day hotel commitments. They wanted to limit delegate guests. Delegates didn't want to go, so they've decided they would bail on it. Uh, I'll give you the details. We'll take your phone calls as well, 877-973-7425. Today's your day to ask me anything. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let us go to the phones to Robert calling from Fayetteville. Robert, welcome. Hi, Eric. Uh, Eric, I wanted to see if you could, one time on one of the shows, you went over the 1619 project. And I know that John, uh, Tom Cotton is getting ready or has introduced a law to stop federal funds for teaching the 1619 project in schools. And I just I remember you mentioning about that Ida Bay Wells uh, really has kind of changed her narrative as this has gone along. I just wanted to see if you could possibly touch on, on that again. Oh, boy, I, I sure am glad you said that. I've been meaning to talk about it. You know what? Uh, forget what I was going to do. Let's uh, how's about we we delve into this. Thank you for that. OK, uh, so the New York Times uh, was conceived by Nicole Hannah Jones. Uh, she is a woman who believes that Africans came to the New World before Europeans. And the proof is the pyramids. Yeah, the Aztec pyramids. I, I, I wish I was making that up, but um, that's it. Uh, she believes it. Uh, this, it is called the 1619 Project because in 1619, the first slave uh, came to the uh, North American continent uh, into the Virginia colony. And uh, so Nicole Hannah-Jones decided and conceived of this project. Let me read for you the opening of her essay here, because this is actually very instructive. Again, uh, so this is, it's Nicole Hannah-Jones, actually, who uh, started this at the New York Times. She is a far-left progressive. She was warned by multiple American historians on the left and the right that she was distorting American history. She did not care about actual noted historians, including on the left. I mean, there was even a denunciation of her in a socialist publication that she willfully distorted American history, and the socialists thought that was bad because uh, they needed to rail against it in a different way. Let me read for you part of what she wrote. My dad always flew an American flag in our front yard. The blue paint on our two-story house was perennially chipped. The fence or the rail by the stairs or the front door existed in a perpetual state of disrepair, but that flag always flew pristine. Our corner lot, which had been redlined by the federal government, was along the river that divided the black side from the west side of our Iowa town. At the edge of our lawn, high on an aluminum pole, soared the flag, which my dad would replace as soon as it showed the slightest tatter. My dad was born into a family of sharecroppers on a white plantation in Greenwood, Mississippi, where black people bent over cotton from can't see in the morning to can't see at night, just as their enslaved ancestors had done not long before. 
The Mississippi of my dad's youth was an apartheid state that subjugated its near-majority black population through breathtaking acts of violence. White residents in Mississippi lynched more black people than those in any other state in the country, and the white people in my dad's home county lynched more black residents than those than in any other county in Mississippi, often for such crimes as entering a room occupied by white women, bumping into a white girl, or trying to start a sharecropper union. My dad's mother, like all black people in Greenwood, could not vote, use the public library, or find work other than toileting in the cotton fields or toileting in white people's houses. So in the 1940s, she packed up her few belongings and her three small children and joined the flood of black Southerners fleeing north. She got off the Illinois Central Railroad in Waterloo, Iowa, only to have her hopes of the mythical promised land shattered when she learned that Jim Crow did not end at the Mason-Dixon line. Grandmama, as we called her, found a house in a segregated black neighborhood on the city's east side and then found the work that was considered black women's work, no matter where black women lived, cleaning white people's houses. Dad, too, struggled to find promise in this land. In 1962, at age 17, he signed up for the Army. Like many young men, he joined in hopes of escaping poverty, but he went into a military for another reason as well, a reason common to black men. He hoped to serve his country, and his country might finally treat him as an American. The Army did not end up being his way out. He was passed over for opportunities. His ambition stunted. He would be discharged under murky circumstances, then labor in a series of service jobs for the rest of his life. And on and on and on and on and on it goes. Now, here we get to this point. This is the key entrance into the 1619 Project. In August 1619, just 12 years after the English settled Jamestown, Virginia, one year before the Puritans landed at Plymouth Rock, and some 157 years before the English colonists even decided they wanted to form their own country, the Jamestown colonists brought 20 to 30 enslaved Africans from English pirates. The pirates had stolen them from a Portuguese slave ship that had forcibly taken them from what is now the country of Angola. Those men and women who came ashore on that August day were the beginning of American slavery. They were among the 12.5 million Africans who would be kidnapped from their homes and brought in chains across the Atlantic Ocean in the largest forced migration in human history until the Second World War. Almost 2 million did not survive the grueling journey known as the Middle Passage. You will notice there is no mention here of African tribal leaders selling other Africans into slavery. It's all the Europeans did it. That's your, your first indication. Something right here is, is a revision. Before the abolition of the international slave trade, 400,000 enslaved Africans would be sold into America. Those individuals and their descendants transformed the lands to which they'd been brought into some of the most successful colonies of the British Empire. Though back breaking, through back-breaking labor, they cleared the land across the southeast. They taught the colonists to grow rice. They grew and picked the cotton that at the height of slavery was the nation's most valuable commodity, accounting for half of all American exports and 66% of the world's supply. They built the plantations of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, sprawling properties that today attract thousands of visitors from across the globe, captivated by the history of the world's greatest democracy. They laid the foundations for the White House and the Capitol, even placing with their unfree hands the Statue of Freedom atop the Capitol Dome. They lugged the heavy wooden tracks of the railroads that crisscrossed the South and that helped take the cotton they picked to the northern textile mills fueling the Industrial Revolution. They built vast fortunes for white people north and south. At one time, the second richest man of the nation was a Rhode Island slave trader. Profits from black people's stolen labor helped the young nation pay off its war debts and finance some of its most our most prestigious universities. And on and on it goes. Here, here, here is her resetting of the American narrative. The United States is a nation founded on both an ideal and a lie. 
Our Declaration of Independence, approved on July 4, 1776, proclaimed that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But the white men who drafted those words did not believe them to be true for the hundreds of thousands of black people and their myths. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness did not apply to fully one-fifth of the country, yet despite being violently denied the freedom and justice promised to all black Americans, believe fervently in the American creed. And essentially what she argues, and this is very, very important, what she argues is that the British were trying to end slavery, and the result is that they had to have a revolution. Conveniently left out of our founding mythology is the fact that one of the primary reasons some of the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. By 1776, Britain had grown deeply conflicted over its role in the barbaric institution that had reshaped the Western Hemisphere. In London, there were growing calls to abolish the slave trade. This would have upended the economy of the colonies in both the North and South. The wealthy and prominence that allowed Jefferson at just 33 and other founding fathers to believe they could successfully break off from one of the mightiest empires of the world came from the dizzying profits generated by chattel slavery. In other words, we may never have revolted against Britain if some of the founders had not understood that slavery empowered them to do so, nor if they had not believed that independence was required in order to ensure slavery would continue. It is not incidental that 10 of this nation's first 12 presidents were enslavers, and some might argue that this nation was founded not as a democracy, but as a slaveocracy. That paragraph is factually not true. Great Britain was in no rush to get rid of slavery. In fact, William Wilberforce was the guy who led Great Britain to ban the slave trade. And it was years after the American Revolution before he was over. There were no great calls. There's actually no serious documented evidence that the London of 1776 cared. Most notably, you notice she hangs her hat on 1776, July of 1776. But the colonists were in open revolt well before 1776. But more stunning, if you actually read the papers of people like Jefferson and Adams and Madison and other founding fathers, including from the South, they all knew they had to get rid of slavery at some point. In fact, it was Thomas Jefferson advising delegates from Virginia to the Continental Congress that they needed to put in a plan in place to get rid of slavery. She's revising American history, not just to put it in its worst possible light, but to put it in a fraudulent light because she believes it. It is notable that in 1620, the colonists who would give America the idea of the Puritan work ethic settled in New England at Plymouth Rock, not in Jamestown, and they brought no slaves with them. In fact, if you recall your American history during the first couple of years in New England, the pilgrims all nearly died because they were a collectivist communal society. What Nicole Hannah-Jones would like. Those who had gave to those who had not by force of government. Land was redistributed. Vegetables from farms were redistributed as needed. And you know what happened? People gave up working. 
They, if what they grew wasn't going to be for them and their family and to resell and it had to go into the commune, well, then uh, they weren't going to work as hard and they nearly starved. And so do you know what was introduced and more widely accepted before the introduction of slavery? Private property. The slave came in 1619 and they were somewhat of an anomaly. In 1620 and by 1622 in New England, where the colonies were really getting started and expanding in Massachusetts, they had introduced private property and the Puritan work ethic. And there were slaves, but they weren't dependent on slavery. The very first calls for ending slavery came from New England, from the Puritans, from from, uh, the religious, from the pulpits. And it spread down and, and even galvanized people like Thomas Jefferson, who knew they had to get rid of slavery, that they could not say that all men were created when some men were enslaved. And it, all you have to do is read the founders. But you don't even have to read the founders. You can read the preachers. And you don't even have to read the preachers. You can look at the historic timetable of William Wilberforce. She she. She premises this on 1776, that the revolution was necessary to preserve slavery, and yet Great Britain was not moving to end slavery. It would be decades before they banned the uh, slave trade, and they didn't actually abolish slavery until after that. All Great Britain did in the early 1800s, thanks to William Wilberforce, is they said you, you, you they would stop the slave trade across the Atlantic, but you could still have slaves in Great Britain. It was only later that they got rid of it. There were American colonies that got rid of slavery before Great Britain got rid of slavery, and Nicole Hannah-Jones chooses to ignore that fact. In fact, she chooses to ignore the weight of historic evidence to grieve, to paint a grievance. Now, the New York Times has decided to monetize this. They've decided that they want to sell this into classrooms as an American history, a revision to American history, as a a revisionist curriculum, that it is time to learn American history through uh, this theory, through this lie, through this disgust and hatred of the United States. And so Tom Cotton and several other senators have gotten together and they have formed a piece of legislation that would ban school money from, ban federal money from going to schools that teach the 1619 Project as a willful distortion of American history. It is, it, it's really striking, by the way, that uh, all of the bad guys in, in Nicole Hannah-Jones are, are white. In fact, this is a woman who believes white people are bad. Uh, she has said as much in the past that white people are bad. Uh, She believes the mythology that Africans came to the New World before Europeans. Uh, She wrote about that into a letter to a a newspaper that the proof was the Aztec pyramid. She believes a lot of unseemly, unsettling things that aren't true. But you have to give this woman credit. She has learned to be able to profit off white guilt. And that's really what this is about, is she needed to find a, a way to get, she's a writer, and she needed to find a way to make money writing. And the best way as a radical progressive these days to make money writing is to feed off the grievances of white liberals. Tell white liberals what they want to hear and you can make all sorts of money. If I were to write a book tomorrow 
that reaffirm to white progressives all the things they hate about Donald Trump. If I were to write a book and say, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm not, I, I gave the man money and I just can't do it. I'm not going to vote for the man. And here's why he is as terrible as you people say. And here are all the things that are bad. I would make a killing. It would be a number one New York Times bestseller. They'd actually review this book of mine. They've never reviewed any of the books I've written. This one they would review, and it would be a number one bestseller because I would be telling white liberals what they wanted to hear. And that's exactly what she's done, and you got to give her credit. She's been able to make mint off of the grievances of white liberals. She's been able to shame white progressives in academia into embracing this, and and even the the left-wing historians who have denounced this have been shamed through fear into silence from pushing back. Mob violence... Mob, mob rule, mob threats have allowed the advance of the 1619 Project from the New York Times down to your school district. Now, I don't know that it will be any more successful than Common Core. A great many Americans are pushing back on Common Core. I suspect they'll push back on this as well. But you got to understand, her initial premise is a lie. And her initial premise is somehow that the United States was born in slavery in 1619 as opposed to in Lexington and Concord uh, through a battle over taxation, among other issues, and the and the denial of the English Bill of Rights to the colonists. It's amazing that you can actually read the letters of the, of the people of the day. They were a letter-writing generation, highly literate, and many of them, even from the South, are lamenting slavery that we're going to have to push it off until we deal with the British and then we need to deal with it. And she didn't care about any of that. It's all irrelevant to her. What's relevant is nursing a racist grievance. It is racist. It's not just racial, it's racist. Grievance against this country. And white liberals applaud it because white liberals have a lot of white guilt and they need to be affirmed that they're actually on the right side of history by being on her side as opposed to actually the real historical side of history. It makes them sleep well at night. It is amazing how many people in this country will pay others to tell them what they want to hear so they sleep well at night. And white liberals, dominant in culture, do this repeatedly. And kudos to this woman for being able to figure out how to profit off their white guilt. Hello there. The phone number is 877-973-7425, 877-973-7425. If you want to call in today, you can ask me anything. Uh, I, I want to do something here. I, I, I want to tell you about one of our great sponsors. I want to tell you about True Precision. Uh, I, I love my gun from True Precision. I got my gun last year. It's it, You know, again, um, I... When I was a kid, my dad listened. This is total, total deviation now. Forget the ad for a second. When I was a kid, my dad listened to Paul Harvey. It was the one time a day we knew that we could be beat within an inch of our life. I, I, I kid because I care. Uh, my dad loved Paul Harvey and would listen. That's actually how we discovered Rush Limbaugh. We were looking for Paul Harvey as he and I were driving around looking at colleges, looking for Rush, uh, for Paul Harvey on the radio. We stumbled upon Rush Limbaugh. We couldn't find Paul Harvey. Uh, and, and my goodness, um, it was, it was, it was, life-changing for me. One day I wanted to grow up and do that, and I've been blessed to be able to fill in for him and and to call him a friend. It's been great. But anyway, so Paul Harvey uh, was just a legend. As I sneeze. Paul Harvey, uh, you really believe that he used every product he sold, that his endorsement was real, whether it was the Renai water heater or or whatever else, the the, the the vitamin supplements for his eyesight, uh, you really believed it. Man, I love Paul Harvey as a kid too. 
And I always thought if I ever got into talk radio, I only want to do ads for the companies that I really know. And, and there have been a couple of times where I've, I've done ads and I've tried to make it clear. I don't, I don't really use these people, but I like their concept. And, and inevitably, it always goes awry. And so if you hear me with an advertiser here on this program, it actually is a company that I know and like. And True Precision is one of them. Uh, True-Precision.com is their website. I have a gun. In fact, where is it? Uh right here i showed it on my live stream the other day i'm going to show you this again those of you who see the live stream the rest of you you'll have to follow me on instagram at ew erickson um so this is my i don't know is it in focus i don't know uh this is my glock 43x it has a camo slide it has a a black barrel it has improved grip and sights and I need to upgrade the trigger, which they can do as well. It is it is my favorite. I mean, this is this is an awesome, awesome. Uh, it's out of focus there. Uh, it, it is an awesome gun. I love it, uh, and it's from True Precision. It is a Glock 43X. Uh, they replaced the grip. They replaced the slide. They replaced the barrel. And I can't thank them enough for it. It is it is a work of art, and you can do the same thing. You can go to true-precision.com. That's their website. And if you look, they, they do different gun models from different manufacturers, and you can buy slides, and you can buy barrels. You can replace the trigger. And if you use Eric, E-R-I-C-K, at checkout, uh, you get 10% off. It, it's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, just go look at their works of art. It, 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 gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. True-precision.com. I can't thank them enough for sponsoring. I, I really am uh, a customer of theirs and was before they started sponsoring the show. I've gotten to know the guys. They're good guys, and they just make wonderful things, and I'm so delighted to have them as a sponsor on the program. I'm ready to go shoot my Glock uh, as well. Uh, 43X, it, it's concealed carry. It's it's great. Now, when we come back, we got a lot of other stuff to talk about. We'll take your phone calls as well, 877-973-7425. The corpse flowers blooming in Atlanta. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, the phone number. You want to be a part of the program? What is our phone number? (laughs) It's been a long week. 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. If if you're just tuning in, in the last hour, it, it, we've decided that it, we're going to start making Fridays it, it, in honor of Rush Limbaugh and, and his open line Friday, Ask Me Anything Friday. You can call in and ask me any question on Friday, and I'll do my best. It's got to be non-adult. Come on, get your minds out of the gutter. Uh, but but you can you can call in and, and help shape the show. The phone number 877-973-7425. In the last hour, someone called in and asked me about the 1619 Project. Tom Cotton and other senators have proposed legislation to ban the teaching uh, or ban federal funding to schools that teach the 1619 Project because it is uh, left-wing propaganda. It it is premised on the idea that the revolution happened because Britain was banning slavery. And Britain did not ban slavery until well after the the American Revolution. In fact, it was when, according to to Nicole Hannah-Jones, Britain was beginning to agitate to ban slavery in 1776, and the colonists needed to rebel to preserve slavery. That is historically false, by the way. They didn't actually ban slavery until 1833. Now... 
1793, there was an act to limit slavery in Canada. Uh, there were British abolitionists in the 1770s, but it wasn't distinct. It was William Wilberforce, actually, who decided to rally the nation to end the slave trade. Uh, and so it was William Wilberforce who, in 1807, after multiple attempts, was able to get Britain to ban slavery. But it's just not actually true that Britain was agitating to ban slavery, and that's what led to the uh, Revolutionary War. In fact, let, let's um, <laughs> here is a, an article from uh, the the Guardian. The headline is "Let's put an end to the delusion." that Britain abolished slavery. And the whole premise of the fact, it, let me just read you this. Uh, it was one of those tweets by a public body you couldn't quite believe. Here's today's surprising fact of the Treasury Department tweeted, millions of you helped in the slave trade through your taxes. Attached to the tweet was an image of slaves and changed with the caption. In 1833, the British government used 20 million pounds, 40% of the national budget, to buy freedom for all slaves in the empire. The amount of money borrowed for the Slavery Abolition Act was so large, it wasn't paid off until 2015, which means that living British citizens helped pay to end the slave trade. The slave trade was actually abolished in 1807. The 1833 Slavery Abolition Act abolished, as the name suggests, slavery itself. A treasury so loose with its facts might explain something about the state of the British economy. Worse, however, was the claim that they helped buy freedom for slavery. The government certainly shelled out 20 million pounds in 1833. That would amount to 16 billion a day, not to free slaves, but to line the pockets of 46,000 British slave owners to recompense them for losing their property. Oh, good gracious. Um, but nonetheless, uh, th th those are your timelines, just so you have a, a, a stronger sense of what's going on here. Now, uh, I... I I want to address a recurring question that comes up on this program. You know, you guys, you, I, I'm, I'm probably, as far as a nationally syndicated radio show host goes, I'm probably a little more explicit with my faith uh, than most. And, and in fact, I'm a little more explicit probably than some would prefer. In fact, I hear about it all the time from people who think I talk too much Jesus. I used to have a... a um, a, a, an employer in radio who did not particularly care for the fact that I was explicitly could explicitly go on uh, theological uh, segments in this program. Well, I continue to get I continue to get emails from people, and I've already done a monologue on, and I don't want to repeat myself, but people who who didn't hear they weren't around their station. In fact, in this case, it was a couple of people from stations that weren't yet with us. Are, are, is this the apocalypse? Is, is, this the, is this the birth pangs? Is Jesus coming back? Well, there's another sign of the apocalypse. In Atlanta, no less, this has happened. The corpse flower has bloomed. This is actually significant, not for the apocalypse, but it's actually really significant. Uh, for the first time in North America, a corpse flower has bloomed in a garden. Now, you may not know uh, what this is, but uh, there is at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens. It is my favorite spot in Atlanta. If I am in Atlanta and have nothing to do, I keep a membership at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens. and I just go wander around. It is a wonderful, beautiful place. I need to, What is the one up at Ball Ground? Uh, there, there's a garden up at Ball Ground, and I need to get up there and see it. I've never been, and I hear it's amazing. I love gardens. I am not a gardener. 
and I appreciate the work it takes to make beautiful gardens. If I ever win the lottery, I want to build a house and have wonderful gardens around it that I can walk in and enjoy. <clears throat> Excuse me. I inhaled wrong. You'd think after 45 years, I'd learn how to breathe. Well, there's a corpse flower in Atlanta. It was planted in 2018. If you don't know what the corpse flower is, the corpse flower is a flower indigenous to Africa. And it has it is one of the largest blooming plants on planet Earth. And when it actually blooms, it smells like rotting flesh. Believe it or not. Now there are some orchids that do this similarly. Now the reason and, and you know, nature is a fascinating thing to me. So the reason the corpse flower blooms and smells like rotting flesh is because it wants to attract certain types of flies as pollinators. And by smelling like rotting flesh, it attracts flies and other insects that would feed off rotting flesh uh, to get in its pollen. And it's just, it's fascinating. And uh, you can go to Atlanta right now and smell it. And it really does smell like a dead body rotting. You know how when you go down the road and there's roadkill and it's been there for a while and it stinks? That, my friends, is what this flower smells like. And this is the very first time it has ever bloomed in North America. And, of course, naturally people, is this another sign of the, the corpse flower? No. Y'all, I got no idea when the apocalypse is happening, and neither do you. No one else does. Don't believe the people who say the end of the world is imminent, and no one knows. Uh, and who cares anyway? Um, seriously, stop caring about when the end of the world is. Uh, you're not going to know when it happens. Uh, live your life, glorify God in everything you do, and stop worrying about the end of the world. Uh, you weren't promised a world free of persecution, and you weren't promised a world free of nice things. There is no reason for you to spend your time hand-wringing about the state of affairs in the world. You get the world as it is, not as you want it to be. You get a world full of sinners and petty people who advance their own agendas, and your job, if you're someone of faith, particularly a Christian, is to glorify God in all you do. In your work, be the very best worker you can be. If you scrub toilets, scrub them better than anyone else. Like Martin Luther King in his street sweeper speech. If you sweep streets, be the best sweet street sweeper you can be. If I can talk. If you're a bush, be the very best bush. If you're a tree, be the very best tree. If you're a toilet scrubber, scrub toilets better than anyone else. If you're a chef, cook better than anyone else. If you're a lawyer, be the best, kindest, nicest, fairest lawyer you can be. If you're a doctor, be the best doctor you can be. Glorify God in everything you do. Have people say, I want that guy because there's something special about him. And that specialness is the Holy Spirit in your heart. And you do that and you live your life and you don't worry about when the last day is because you're already on the winning team. There's no reason for you to worry. Stop worrying about when the end of the world is. Are things bad? Yeah, things are bad. Do you see all the earthquakes, the volcanoes, the random stuff that we have news of that probably have happened, but we never really knew it? And, and now we got random earthquakes all over North America, fracking or whatever it is. Is it the birthplace? Yeah, I think it probably is. I, I think we're probably uh, we're in the grand wind down now. But we have no idea when we finally wind down. We have no idea when the second coming is. We have no idea when Jesus is coming back. So there's no reason to obsess about it. You can't control it, so don't fixate on it. You know, if if I have one remarkable talent in my life, and I have very few, I have learned over the years to appreciate the things I have no control over and not let them bother me in very, very limited circumstances. 
I can't control what you think about me. I can't control whether you listen. I I, I cannot control uh, what the president does. I can't control uh, what, what gets people worked up. I, I can't control it. So I can't let it bother me and, and neither should I can't control Jesus Christ. I can't tell him when to come back. I, I can't do any of that stuff. Is he coming back tomorrow? Absolutely not. I can assure you with 100% certainty tomorrow will not be the second coming of Jesus Christ. Neither will next week. And do you know how I know that with certainty? Because there are still prophecies that must be fulfilled in scripture, including spreading uh, the scripture to all the ends of the earth. And if you go to the Museum of the Bible in D.C., there's a great wall of all the languages on earth that still have yet to have a Bible translated into their languages. And I take very seriously the idea that you must spread the Bible to all the people of all the languages of the earth before Jesus can come. And that wall still has languages up there that haven't been translated. So he can't come back this week or next week. That's got to be done first. But is it soon? Yeah, I probably think it is. Is it in my lifetime? I don't know that that's the case. My kids probably, grandkids, more likely than not. But I don't really know. There's clearly something happening in the world right now in a way that hasn't happened in the past. There are clearly things going on, both spiritually and physically in the world. Biologically, geographically, uh, geologically, there are random things happening that that just all of a sudden have been happening in the last several decades. Is something happening? Yes, I think so. But there's absolutely no reason on planet Earth to obsess over it, to dwell over it, to worry over it, to, to wring your hands over it, to, to delight in it, to revel in it, nothing. Your, your job is to glorify God in everything you do, so go do that. Focus on what you can control, not on the stuff you can't control. You can't control it. You don't know when it will happen. So just live your life. Uh, no one was promised a fair life. No one was promised an easy life. No one was promised a life free of persecution. Uh, God himself came to earth in the form of a man, was tortured, beaten to within an inch of his life, uh, had a crown of thorns placed on his head, nailed to a cross, was crucified, died, was buried, descended into hell, was raised again on the third day and ascended into heaven. Uh, he had it, it. It sucked for him too. The perfect man was, was treated worse than any of you. So, Stop worrying about your lot in life and live your life and be a good person. Love your neighbors and 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 just focus on that. I hope that helps. But the corpse flower has bloomed in Atlanta, and that's something. Okay, let's go to the phones. Uh, who am I going to? Uh, the phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-973-7425. What? Savannah? James and Savannah, you're going to be next. Welcome. Hey, Eric, a uh, fan of the show. Um, my whole thing is people need to stop demonizing teachers um, when school districts are offering less protections for COVID um, than retail businesses are. For example, Forsyth County is telling its teachers that if they have a loved one in their home who's sick, that they can still report to work. Oh, boy. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I'm glad you raised this issue because I, I got to tell you, I, I've got several friends of mine who are teachers and a, one of them in particular, who is a teacher and also kind of helps kind of manage the school behind the scenes, telling me she has been treated really well. I can't use the word she used, um, but but poorly, let's put it that way. She's been treated very poorly by families and and even some parents with whom she's had good relationships in the past because they're super frustrated about getting their kids back into school and she doesn't want to get sick she doesn't want to get the virus she doesn't want to get the kids the virus and they're trying to figure out what to do and frankly the the guidance that people are getting from the federal government and multiple state governments including here in georgia is so muddy 
that essentially local school districts are having to figure it out themselves. And I got to give David Purdue some credit here. And James, thanks very much for the phone call. Um, I, I got to give Purdue credit here for recognizing there's a problem and he needs to, that we need to allow local school groups to figure out for themselves how they're going to proceed and give them liability protection in doing so. There is clearly a need to get kids back to school for actual FaceTime with teachers and friends. How you do that is an open subject. It's actually one of the things I, in my notes, I was supposed to talk about that right now instead of the apocalypse. Maybe that's part of the apocalypse. We'll get to that, though, uh, and a lot more, and we'll keep taking your phone calls. You can ask me anything today, 877-973-7425. By the way, I, I keep getting emails from people about the masks I recommended. I'm trying to make it as easy as possible for everyone. You know, I, I use keywords on the show to help make it a little more interactive with you and help get you pointed in the right direction. If you text the word data, D-A-T-A. If you text that number or text that word data to the number 33777, you will get back a link and it will, you'll get back a text message from me fairly immediately. And it'll have three links. The first one will be to the masks. The second will be to the Georgia Department of Public Health's COVID tracker. And the third will be to the IHME modeling. Uh, about Georgia, you can see them, and I adjust those over time. But the the mask company, the the, the word, it, it's very easy. Adams, you know, not not Adam like like the first man, but Adam like the tiny particle. Uh, Adams plural a t o m s dot com. It's a shoe company, and they're actually manufacturing masks right now as well. Uh, and, and by the way, um, I. Uh, if you're a major company or or you're a governmental entity and you need like masks in bulk, uh, I, this this isn't an ad. This is just I've got a friend of mine who uh, he's connected with a company that makes them in bulk and they're selling millions of masks to countries in Central and South America and, and they just don't have a distribution channel in the U.S. They're they're domestically made. They're made in the U.S. but they're made down in Florida. And they've got a lot of connections in Central and South America, and they, they tend to do direct sales. And at this point, they're selling so many, they got to have a distribution channel. Uh, but I've had a couple of people ask, and, and I've, I've put people in touch with him uh, for, like I had a, a company the other day reach out. Their CEO lives in Atlanta, heard me, and they need like 100,000 masks and was able to, to put them in, in touch uh, to get his company masks. So just shoot me an email, eric at theresurgent.com if so. But for the for your own personal use, the masks I like uh, are from a company called Adams. They're a shoe company, A-T-O-M-S.com. I don't like their shoes, by the way, but I like their masks. They're good. Uh, really recommend them. Uh, I, I wear it everywhere. You can wash them. They dry quick. They got silver and copper lining in them. They're antimicrobial. Uh, they're good stuff. Now, we got to move on. Uh, we got other stuff that's out there right now. The film industry is reopening in Georgia. I thought they were going to boycott us. They never actually did. They they never actually did. Um, I am skeptical of the film industry growing in Georgia because I'm afraid it'll pull the state to the left. Uh, but they actually are working in the state and they're providing jobs in the state. And Tyler Perry, among others here in the state, has put people back to work on uh, slow rolling productions, which is good. The economy is uh, reopening. I got to tell you, you, you know, so so the big craze these days is the anti-racism 
people. You know, so when I was in at Mercer, I went to Mercer undergrad and law school, and in both cases, you had to do diversity training, and it really was the stupidest thing. Uh, law school was actually even stupider. That they, they brought in some some expert who some diversity coordinator. I I I swear these people have found a rag. I admire them for the hustle. You've got a bunch of white people who come in and want to lecture other white people on how they're racist. Uh, that that D'Angelo woman who wrote White Fragility, she's been cashing in, making millions off her scam. And it really is. The, the whole idea that, I mean, you would, this, these are the sorts of things that Hitler believes, that a, a particular race at birth is bad. And she says this to white liberals. It was the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list. And, and all these liberals applauding her for telling them that at birth they're bad. It's, it's, it's such a scam. But, man, I remember the the diversity nonsense when I was in law school. The very first week, it is required. You've got to go through it. You've got no choice. And so you just suck it up and you go through it. And they do stupid little things that, like they put a note on your back of, of what you actually are um, and, and how people react to you. And, and it's just you, you, you the, the best way to play along is to not. Um, the, the only way to, 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 to do this thing, particularly if you, if you don't buy into the nonsense is to just kind of sit at the side of the room, keep your mouth shut, grin and bear it, make your way through it, uh, say what they want you to, cause you know, I mean, that's one of the things here with this, this diversity nonsense, you know, what they want you to say, you know, going into it, uh, these people are so predictable. I mean, I wonder if the women and gender studies, women and gender studies degrees are, are some of the most worthless things on, in society, except now I'm pretty sure these diversity uh, people come out of there and they can make a fortune. Uh, they either they go back to college. You get a degree in women and gender studies and you go back to college and teach other people how to be grievance mongers or you do diversity nonsense. You become an HR manager and you're a bitter person. I mean, if you're getting a degree in, in women and gender studies to begin with, you're a bitter person and, and then you, you get this diversity stuff. Well, you know, I mean, these people aren't exactly smart. They got a women and gender studies degree. And so, you know, you just tell them what they want to hear and you suffer through the day and then you get on with the rest of your life and you laugh about them the rest of your life. But my goodness, these people are cashing in on this, this diversity nonsense. It, it really is there, we got problems in this country. That's one of the problems, the diversity experts, just for my friend, Todd, who I know is listening, <laughs> I've been meaning to talk about this for a while and others. I mean, there's been so much news out there. I just I, I, I mentioned it once probably two months ago and I hadn't mentioned it any time since. And, and there is actually we got more data on it. And so now I'm I'm going to because because my buddy Todd, who lives down the street from me, texted and said, hey, uh, have you mentioned this? Have you talked about this? And it's like, man, I'm, I'm glad he wanted me to talk about it because it gives me an incentive to do this uh, uh by the way we're, we're doing we've decided to just start doing well i've just i didn't even tell charlie i was going to do it um but it's ask me anything day you you can call in whatever topic you you've been mulling over a topic and you want my thoughts on it uh and you can't text me like todd uh you can call 877-973-7425 <laughs> the coin shortage. Do you know there actually is a real coin shortage in the country? If you go like uh, to CVS, like I've got a CVS down the road from me, and there are big signs, exact change or cards, please, uh, because they don't have enough money to make exact change in places. Uh, a lot of places have quarters and nothing else because uh, quarters are used vending machines still. Uh, quarters are used at toll roads and stuff like that. Uh, so there are quarters out there, and, and but even quarters are now starting to be on decline. Uh, and it's not really a shortage. It's from lack of use. 
Here's the problem. Uh, early on in the pandemic, people were told you should probably keep your hands as clean as possible. And one of the things you want to do is uh, don't use a bunch of coins uh, and, and don't get coins back. Try to use your card so people aren't handing you people who may have the virus. They've got the oils and the sweat on their hands and they're giving you dollar bills and they're transmitting the virus that way through touch and and all of that sort of stuff people were told early on. And so people stopped using actual physical currency. They started using their debit cards and credit cards more. Uh, there's actually been a surge in debit and credit cards. So people have a lot of coins at home and they're not using them. Uh, you can go to uh, like your Kroger, Walmart, or Publix, and some places have those coin machines where you dump them all in, they spin around, and, and they give you actual money back um, beyond the coins. They're, they're doing that, but we got a real coin shortage in the country. So there are two things that have collided in the world to bring about the coin shortage, and it's more really a disruption than a shortage. Disruption would be more accurate. The Federal Reserve to maintain social distancing guidelines is running at reduced capacity in its uh, facilities that actually make the coins and the, the paper money. So that has slowed the rollout of new coinage. And then people aren't using what they've already got at home. I keep all my loose change in a jar and occasionally take it over to public, stump it in the machine and, and get dollar bills back. And people aren't doing that. They don't want to touch the stuff. Uh, they don't want to spread the virus. So they're doing what the experts told them. And one of the economic side effects of it is we've got reduced coinage. So people are using their debit cards and credit cards more. Uh, and then as there are less and less coins, this feedback loop grows. So at some point, you people need to find your spare change and, and go dump it. Now, I, I wish there's an article in, in, in Yahoo Finance. Where is this? Um, Fast Company reports that more than $47 billion in coins are already in circulation, which means many Americans are simply holding on to change that they're not spending at the moment. So in other words, you, me, and everyone else in this country has $47 billion worth of pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters in our houses or cars right now, $47 billion or under your couch or, or in your vacuum cleaner somewhere. There are, there are $47 billion worth of coins in households right now. And people aren't taking that money and, and dumping it into reserves or, or taking it back to the grocery store to, to convert it. And as a result, there's a coin shortage. It's just, it, it's fascinating to look at this stuff as it goes around the country. Uh, meat shortages and the meat shortages at this point are people hoarding meat. It's not actually at this point the meat processors. Uh, it is the, the hoarding of meat. People are getting it and they're sticking it in their freezers. I, I'm guilty of that, y'all. I put meat in my freezer and then forgot about it. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to throw it away at this point because it's been there for a year. Ugh, yeah. Um, so that, 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 that's your coin shortage problem. But, and then you got the meat shortage problem. I mean, you know, we don't have a toilet paper shortage anymore by and large. You know what we have? We have a paper towel shortage. People have, have been hoarding paper towels because they couldn't find the toilet paper and they could find the paper towels and they presumed that the paper towels were going to be short. And so they've been buying up the paper towels. So now you can find the toilet paper and you can't find the paper towels. That's one of your bizarre ones. And we're still having a delay in, in Clorox and Lysol stuff. Uh, you go to your local grocery store and they're out of cleaning supplies. Now, a lot of the cleaning supplies have diverted from retail use to corporate use for hospitals and stuff. 
uh, but you can't find Purell anywhere because the parent company of Purell is so focused on providing supplies for hospitals and first responders, they've given up the retail market right now. And I got to tell you, I never appreciated Purell until you had to buy the other stuff. We went to Target last week. And Target was selling hand sanitizer. We needed hand sanitizer. And we got hand sanitizer from Target. And we got in our car. And I opened the hand sanitizer and squirted a little bit on my hands before I passed through the family. And I took one smell of it. And couldn't pass it. I had to throw it away. It was gr- It smelled like rotten fruit. It was disgusting. And I was at uh, the local Circle K gas station, and they had big bottles of hand sanitizer for sale. For sale, and I, I, I got a bottle of it, and it smelled so gross. I threw it away. I, I'm sorry, all. I realize we need hand sanitizer when, when we don't have, um, when we don't have soap and water. But I'm not putting something on my hands that smells like I've just stuck them in the carcass of a rotting deer on the side of the road. I'm just not doing it. I, it's like rubbing your hands in the corpse flower. I'm not going to do it. It was disgusting. And I finally, last night, I've started when I go, when I go to the drugstore, having to pull my mask down to smell the hand sanitizers to see if they're acceptable. And finally, last night, I was at a Walgreens and they had an entire shelf of the two ounce bottles of Purell and I bought half of them. I I left some for other people. I'm not going to hoard it. I actually was able to source one ounce bottles of Purell from a company and, and they arrive at some point. I got like 50 bottles of one ounce bottles of Purell because you can't find it anywhere. I miss Purell. It is, I did not realize it was that hard to manufacture a hand sanitizer that doesn't make you gag. And yet it is. So there, there you have it. I'm sure you wanted my dissertation on that. The, the other random things you can't, I mean, what other random things can't you find in grocery stores like now? You know, one of the, the hard things that, that's been able to find, flour, of course, for a while was hard to find. And flour is finally coming back. Ketchup, Heinz ketchup in particular. You can tell that people actually have taste in ketchup. I have to speak quietly here. My wife likes hunts. But, I mean, people with taste like Heinz ketchup. And <laughs> it's a running joke at our, we actually keep two bottles of ketchup in our refrigerator because I, I refuse ketchup that's not Heinz. And I love, y'all, I got to tell you, you're, okay, can I tell y'all a deep, dark secret of mine without you, without my audience abandoning me? Am, are we alive? Do we have this level of trust between you and me? I don't know that we do, but I'm going to chance it. <laughs> a friend of mine is listening. says, don't tell them that. Don't tell them that. They'll never listen again. <laughs> I'm a big fan of ketchup. The president and I have something in common. Steak and ketchup. Delicious. <laughs> I'm sorry to the local program directors for destroying your ratings all of a sudden. I'm telling you, though, I, I, I had an aunt who put ketchup on eggs, which is a bridge too far for me. But if it's fried or it's meat, I use ketchup. I love ketchup. Heinz ketchup is the perfect food to me. And I hadn't been able to find it at the grocery store. I, I've actually been having to order it online. And my wife finally looked at me like two weeks ago. She said, stop ordering ketchup. I still can't find it at the local public, except randomly, randomly, uh, the, the, all the other ketchups there. And who is Sir Kensington? 
who is Sir Kensington? Sir Kensington is apparently some some knockoff or, or what is it, Condita or, 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 or some other knockoff. Why do you other people even make ketchup? There is no reason. I was actually listening to a, uh, an, a what is it, uh, Milk Street Radio. You know, I love to cook. That's why we do the recipes and stuff. And uh, there, <laughs> there was a, they were interviewing, he's a, he's a chef. He's got a, a lobster house in Maine and it's very much a, uh, the stuff comes in newspapers and you get lobster rolls and beer, but it's, it's a James Beard award-winning fish house. And one of the things they do is they grow everything that they serve. They harvest their own lobster themselves. They harvest their own oysters themselves. They make their own hot sauce. They they grow their own potatoes for the French fries. They grow their own onions and garlic. They make their own seasonings. Every single thing in this restaurant is stuff they themselves make. They even make their own mayonnaise. And they pickle their 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 um their tomatoes and stuff that are headed out of season. They preserve them so they can serve them in the off seasons as traditionally done. It is a Michelin starred fish house. It is a James Beard award winning fish house. There's only one thing they do not make in house: their ketchup. Heinz only, and and, and the 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 chef being interviewed uh, by by oh what's his name on in, in Milk House. Uh, or Milk Street Radio, Christopher Kimball, he says there, there's there's no, you can't get more perfect than Heinz ketchup. There's no reason to try to, you can improve mayonnaise, you can improve hot sauce, you can improve your spice mixes, you can improve your mustards, you can't improve Heinz ketchup. And I, I'm 100% in agreement with him. And as a result, everyone else agrees. And it's been impossible to find at my local grocery store until very recently. And then it's very flaky. I can go to an Ingalls one day and it'll be there and then not the next day. And it's just weird. The stuff that is still just just sold out of grocery stores. There's actually a, a waffle brand. It's a Kellogg's brand. It's called Off the Grid. It's a higher protein waffle. And they've had to abandon production of it from what I was reading in the paper because Kellogg's is so focused on its staple products that they've had to give up some of their uh, non-Kellogg branded products right now because they just don't have the capacity. And we're going to be dealing with this for a while. And again, you know, this goes full circle to my conversations with Sonny Perdue, the the Secretary of Agriculture, that uh, we've got supply chain issues in this country. Our um, supply chain is great when there's not a crisis. Because everything is very fresh, it gets to you very timely, it gets to you very quick. Uh, something can go from the field to your table in, in a day or two, and then you get the virus and it just kinks everything up, and, and we gotta we got to find our path forward with that. One of the other areas where we have to find our path forward in this country right now is, is worship and churches. John MacArthur's Grace Community Church has released a letter to the governing authorities of California saying that they're going back to church. And if you don't like it, come stop them. Um, but they're they're going back to church. They believe that they have a, a higher calling from Christ and that the state cannot uh, control their worship and they're going back to church. I have been asked by a lot of people this morning who read the letter uh, what I thought of it. I want to discuss it with you when we come back. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. John MacArthur. You know John MacArthur. So the very first time I ever preached uh, was in Colorado. I had a John MacArthur study Bible. Uh, my my sermon was supposed to be 30 minutes on Genesis 1-1. I came prepared. And then as I get into the pulpit, 
to preach. Who should sit down right in front of me? John MacArthur. <laughs> I had no idea he was going to be there. My, my, my 30 minutes turned into about eight minutes of me talking as fast as I could to possibly get off stage. Uh, we, we've got a mutual friend, though, and he texted the friend of mine. We, we, were, we had talked uh, briefly uh, beforehand. We were in the group. I didn't know he was going to come out and sit there. Uh, and uh, we had talked briefly. We've got a mutual friend, and he texted my friend and said he did okay, but he talked fast. <laughs> Oh boy. Um, yeah, that, that, that was, it's all been downhill for me in the pulpit since. Um, so, but so grace community church in sun Valley, California is going to continue to, uh, hold services. Uh, John MacArthur has, uh, published a piece saying that government officials have no right to interfere in ecclesiastical matters in a way that undermines or disregards the God given authority of pastors and elders. Very interesting here. And to his credit, Actually, you know what? Let me read this uh, directly from uh, gty.org is the website. And I want to read you a very key paragraph here. Notice that we are not making a constitutional argument, even though the First Amendment of the United States Constitution expressly affirms the principle in its opening words, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The right we are appealing to is not created by the Constitution. It is one of those unalienable rights granted solely by God who ordained human government and establishes both the extent and limitations of the state's authority. Our argument, therefore, is purposely not grounded in the First Amendment. It is based on the same biblical principles that the amendment itself is founded upon. The exercise of true religion is a divine duty given to men and women created in God's image. In other words, freedom of worship is a command of God, not a privilege granted by the state. An additional point needs to be made in this context. Christ is always faithful and true. Human governments are not so trustworthy. Scripture says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That refers, of course, to Satan. John 12, 31 and 16, 11 call him the ruler of the world, meaning he wields power and influence through the world's political systems. Jesus said of him, he is a liar and the father of lies. History is full of painful reminders that government power is easily and frequently abused for evil purposes. Politicians may manipulate statistics and the media can cover up or camouflage inconvenient truths. So a discerning church cannot passively or automatically comply if the government orders a shutdown of congregational meetings, even if the reason given is a concern for public health and safety. It's actually a very well-reasoned, well-articulated letter, and a lot of churches could learn from it. Now, his church and other churches, my church as well, were willing to stop services for a period of time. My church now meets, and they spread out on the street in front of the church. They work with the city. They close down the the city street every Sunday morning at 9, and everyone sits outside, uh, families together separated uh, from each other as best they can or in their cars. There's a a radio transmitter feed where people can sit in their cars with the air conditioner running and hear the sermon. And we're not back inside the building. We're going to keep doing that, weather permitting. I, 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 there is a, I think, a troubling tendency of some churches to confuse the building with the church. The building is not the church. The, the Church of Jesus Christ is, is not dependent on a facility in which to meet. 
But California, in many cases, is now going beyond just banning a bunch of people from being in a church building and saying even house churches can't meet right now. You can't meet in people's homes. You can't have Bible studies in your homes. That's a bridge too far for me. I I think churches, as part of communities, have obligations to help keep the virus at bay, to be socially responsible, uh, to take steps to socially distance each other. I mean, we're seeing churches uh, be responsible for spreading communities. We saw it in Bartow County here in Georgia where a a church service caused a lot of people to get the virus and a number of them have died. There are ways to do it. And and unfortunately, there are a number of political entities out there that don't want to allow churches at all to meet. And I think that you're going to have to give churches some leeway to allow them to meet as best they can. And and I would urge the churches that decide to meet in that way to please be respectful and responsible in how they meet, wear masks, even when singing, if you're gonna sing, socially distance, spread out in your church, have access to hand sanitizer, don't allow the congregants to congregate after the church service, disperse as best you can without crowds having to crowd together at the door, things like that. If you And if you can't, do what our church is doing, spread out on the street. Churches have a role in communities and they've got responsibilities in communities. Uh, and, and this church, among others, was willing to close the doors of the church and be online and let people worship online. But now the governor of California, because other people weren't responsible, wants to shut churches back down. And not only that, some of these communities in California are banning meeting at home, home churches, Bible studies, things like that. That's a bridge too far even for me. You got to have good community. Churches are part of that community. But MacArthur is absolutely right uh, that while we are to obey the civil authorities, Christians are to obey the civil authorities only insofar as they don't deviate from God. I will tell you as well, while I think churches have a civic obligation too, to be good neighbors, to love their neighbors, to not be transmitters of the virus, if you don't feel comfortable going to church right now, and and my family, frankly, we don't. We've been staying home. Um, I've been sitting around the table actually working with my kids through the Gospel of John. You've you've got to you, you got to make accommodations for that as well. Um, it, there, there's really not a dichotomy, and I want you to be real clear here. I I don't view this as a level of persecution, but I, I do appreciate uh, folks like MacArthur and others standing up and saying we're not going to shut down again. Uh, we'll we'll be reasonable and and we'll work with you, but we're not going to do this again. And and I think he's he's got a well reasoned decision there. You can see it for yourself if you go to gty.org. You can see his logic and reasoning, and I appreciate at least he's not trying to make a First Amendment argument here. He's making an argument based on theology. Do you all know what tomorrow is? Believe it or not, tomorrow marks the 100-day milestone before the presidential election. Uh, Mark Lauder from the presidential campaign is going to join me. The president has a new ad out against Joe Biden. (laughs) 
Joe Biden had 47 years in Washington. His record? Higher taxes on working families, disastrous trade deals, jobs shipped to China and Mexico, manufacturing obliterated. Now Biden has a plan for $4 trillion in new taxes and amnesty for 11 million illegal immigrants, letting them compete for American jobs. Tired old liberal ideas. Joe Biden failed for 47 years. Don't let him fail again. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. You know, I actually like the ad. To tell you the truth, I like the ad. Uh, I, I think that is an effective message against Joe Biden. He was there for 47 years and got nothing done. I, I think that is a good way to to do this. And this comes as Brianna Killer even on CNN points out, you know, the president's actually engaged more than, well, Joe Biden. You know, we took uh, this economic address that the former vice president gave this week, and he didn't take questions from the press after it, which is becoming a very it's become a very common approach for him why why isn't he taking these questions isn't that an essential part of running for president i think he's happy to take questions he did it two weeks ago i believe he had a a press conference where he took questions from the press and that that was uh, i think a very positive of that went very very well um i i don't think that's something he does not want to do i think but, but i think it had been i think it had been months since he'd done that when he did do that no and no, no, no he, did, he did that recently the no no conference. i know but before that prior to, that's what i'm saying he doesn't do it often so before that it's that he may have done it a couple weeks ago but he does this infrequently is my point yes he very rarely actually takes questions from you. And when he does, it doesn't go quite well for Joe. I mean, I, I realize, listen, uh, th- there is a strategy on the Democratic side to keep Joe Biden away from the press because it does highlight just how old he is. And I, I, it, it's, it's a smart strategy when you are that old. And when you say goofy things, it it actually is a smart strategy for him, whether you like it or not. But he's not going to be able to do it forever because the media wants access. Now, some of them won't. So some of them actually will give him a pass on this. It just it says a lot about the Joe Biden strategy that they think the president is is costing himself the election. I mean, and, and you know, I, I think there's a general consensus out there on the left or the right that Joe Biden is not going to win the election so much as Donald Trump is going to lose the election. But it is deeply relevant, I think, that uh, the Joe Biden campaign wants to keep him away from questioners uh, other than like MSNBC will ask him softball questions Mr. Vice President, when was the last time you thought happy thoughts? Mr. Vice President, you're the only person over the age of 75 who doesn't have old people smell. How do you remarkably smell like teen spirit? I mean, these are the the sorts of things the media would ask Joe Biden. Don't at me over the old person's mail. You know it's true. There have been scientific studies done. But, I mean, so they they just, they keep him away. And, And the fact of the matter is, the relevance here is that they think that Donald Trump is hurting himself. And as Napoleon would say, never, never try to beat an enemy when the enemy is beating himself. Or that's, that's not the exact quote, but you, you understand. 
uh, that was something Napoleon said. So this is their strategy. They can only do it so much. You know, there's a growing uh, body of people who believe that Joe Biden's not going to want to debate Donald Trump. I don't believe that's going to happen. The Trump campaign would have a field day if Biden avoided the fight. In fact, Trump's been out saying we need to have five debates instead of three. And the Biden campaign says, no, 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 we agreed to three. The presidential task force on debates or whatever it is decided that there were going to be three debates. They're going to have three debates. They're going to have a foreign policy, a domestic policy, and a free-for-all with the public. And oh, my goodness, wait until you see them engage together. It's it's going to be something. Uh, If the election were held today, Joe Biden would win. You all dispute this if you like Donald Trump. You know who doesn't dispute this? The people who are advising the president. They don't dispute it. If the election were held today, the Democrats would take back the Senate. We are 101 days away, though, and things can change. A debate can change things. Uh, When the people actually see Joe Biden, who has been protected, uh, when they actually see him on stage, that's going to hurt. And again, I want to play this ad one more time for you real quick. Because I think this is the most effective message that the president has against Joe Biden. Joe Biden had 47 years in Washington. His record? Higher taxes on working families, disastrous trade deals, jobs shipped to China and Mexico, manufacturing obliterated. Now Biden has a plan for $4 trillion in new taxes and amnesty for 11 million illegal immigrants, letting them compete for American jobs. Tired old liberal ideas. Joe Biden failed for 47 years. Don't let him fail again. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. Y'all, uh, I think that's his message. I-, I think that's a great message against Joe Biden. You know, polling showed fairly regularly that the the mental stuff for Joe Biden doesn't really work. People actually think that about Donald Trump, too. But 47 years in Washington, D.C., and he got nothing done, that's a compelling message. I mean, you don't want to go backwards to have to go forwards. That's a compelling message. Will it work? I don't know. Do they have time to let it sink in? If they're consistent with it, they've been kind of throwing everything at the kitchen wall to see what sticks. This, I think, is something that will stick. Uh, This, I think, is a good message for the president's campaign. You know, the president's campaign, they're being helped by the the Karens of the world out there. Apparently, now, I did not know. I, I, I had no idea. It is news to me that the Karen phenomenon is derived from the black community. I I had no idea. And apparently, well, the the Vox kids want you to know that. Uh, So apparently, uh, do you know the Karen phenomenon? The Karen phenomenon is uh, women in particular who are bossy and abusive to other people. And it is more and more caught on cell phone video of these women. It's like the two women who were at the Walmart where the dude was shopping. He was shopping. He was on the aisle by himself. And these two women ambushed him from either side, yelling at him, you need to wear a mask. Why aren't you wearing a mask? You should be wearing, we're all going to die because of you. Uh, Ultimate Karen. Or the woman who uh, said she was going to call the police on the black man who was bird watching in, in the park in New York and she didn't have a mask on. And, and he just asked her if he would keep if she would keep his dog, keep her dog on a leash and wear her mask. And and she decided to call the police and claim a black man was harassing her. She lost her job. And even that guy's come out and say, wait a second, y'all, this has gone too far. 
Uh, there's no reason to destroy this woman's life um, when she wanted to destroy his life. Impressive. Well, uh, uh, you know, so here's the thing. Apparently, it's racist now to have co-opted Karen. I didn't know it was a thing. This is a conversation uh, between Damon Young and uh, somebody at Vox, the left-wing news site. Do you think there's anything to worry about in terms of the co-opting of this phrase from the black community? I think that the co-opting of this term is why I don't use it anymore. <laughs> so my issue with the term, it's about how white people's use of it and mainstream publications use of it have minimized the damage that murderous Karens can do by lumping them in the same category as just the annoying woman who asks for extra ice. It takes attention away from the greater and structural atmospheric bias and, and racism. <laughs> the, I mean, that's like the ultimate Karen there. You can't use Karen. You've appropriate, culturally appropriated it. Y'all, I just, I, I, I don't even know what to say about some of this stuff. It's just so, so nonsensical. It's just so dumb. Uh, it, it, it's like the, the ongoing conspiracy. I, I played you some of this yesterday, and this montage is out there of, of the Democrats carrying themselves over over uh, Donald Trump sending the, the troops to protect the federal courthouse in, in Portland, Oregon. I think we were looking at a potentially a trial run for a kind of gen, a genuine attempt to, 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 through intimidation and potentially through force, to try to uh, to try to steal this election. If he loses, and I expect that he will, uh, we have to be prepared for things that this nation has never faced um, before. And unfortunately, that could involve the use of uh, you know these these forces. It has been suggested that this is a trial run by the president of the United States, who may be organizing uh, to not accept. Uh, what happens when we have the election. I think we should all take very seriously the prospect that this is, as I say, a dress rehearsal, a trial run. You don't draw a line in the sand. This country may be looking down the barrel of martial law in the middle of an election. This is, I guess, the president's own version of martial law since the real military uh, has kind of pushed back from doing that. Is there anybody, having watched Donald Trump for the last three and a half years, who doesn't think that Donald Trump would try to employ martial law if he thought it was the only way he could stay in power? I ask you, Joe, is there anybody mm -hmm. who's sensible who comes on this show who doesn't think that that's possible? Uh, I don't think it's possible, and I've been on Morning Joe. Um, th these people are nuts. The these people really are nuts. You know, I'm old enough to remember when it was Republicans who believed Al Gore would not vacate the vice presidential uh, house and that Bill Clinton wouldn't in 2000. And then with George W. Bush, I remember it was it was left wing Democrats who said they weren't going to vacate when Obama got elected. And then Republicans believed Obama wouldn't vacate uh, when Trump got elected. And now Democrats, oh, he's not going to vacate. If You know what they're really actually scared about? I really think they're scared that he's going to win again. And they're already seeding the ground with conspiracy theories on that. That oh, it's going to be the federal shock troops who stop the stop the president from losing. They're going to intimidate people and keep them away from the polls. I mean, you're not a very confident person in the election when you believe these sorts of things. That this simply isn't true. Now, now, Bill Maher, I, I've been on his show on HBO. He too is convinced that the president 
will not leave the White House if he loses. It, you know, it doesn't matter. Constitutionally, it doesn't matter. The, the president ceases being president at noon on Ju- January 20th, 2021, if he loses. It, it does not matter. There will be random trespasser in the White House at that time if he refused to vacate. It's just, it's nonsense. He, he, he constitutionally can't do it. And for you to think that the United States military, the Secret Service, the Congress, or anyone else is going to let him stay in the White House? No. I mean, have you not paid attention to the string of losses at the Supreme Court? This is kooky conspiracy theory of people who aren't confident that Joe Biden can actually win, and they're trying to structure the argument to already make the case that he stole the election. Do you know what we would call Donald Trump if he refused to concede the election if he lost? We would call him Stacey Abrams. I mean, that's what she did, and the Democrats were fine with it. They were fine with Hillary Clinton casting down on the election. They, they've been fine with this stuff whenever it happens to the Democrats. The Democrats, they're trying to whip their own base into a frenzy over this, and in the process, they undermine the integrity of our political process, and they don't care. They do not care because they think Donald Trump is illegitimate, so they think the process has already been undermined when they can never accept that they actually had a terrible candidate for president in 2016 who did not do what she needed to win, and they can't accept that, so they would rather blame the Russians for stealing the election uh, and and the racists and everyone else uh, and make excuses for Hillary Clinton, and they've already started. We are 100 days, 101 days today from election day, and they're already trying to start making excuses for why Joe Biden didn't win, and it has everything to do with with undermining the integrity of the electoral process, which suggests they're worried about November. It is Eric Erickson here, and the phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Y'all, I I just... I I mentioned this in the last hour with regards to the 1619 Project, white liberals doing their best to make themselves feel not guilty for their own racism uh, by blaming everyone else. Well, the New York Times is introducing a podcast called Nice White Parents. Uh, They got an intro online. I haven't even heard it yet. I'm making a terrible mistake, I'm sure, by playing part of this. Nice White Parents is made by Serial Productions and brought to you by the New York Times. I want to take you back to a time when a group of idealistic people, feeling hopeful about the future, about America, threw themselves into the fight for racial integration. It was 1963, and New York City was planning to build a new school right next to a housing project, where the students would be almost entirely Black and Puerto Rican. But these white parents came in and said, no, 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 don't build it there. Put it closer to the white neighborhood. That way all our kids can go to school together. They were dogged, these white parents, lobbying the city at meetings, writing letters, saying don't build it there. It will inevitably be a segregated school. And we want our kids to mix with black and Puerto Rican kids from the projects. It's a decade after Brown v. Board of Education, they said. Schools should be integrated. There's an archive filled with letters where the parents wrote things like, we don't want our white children to be part of some, quote, small, white, middle-income clique. The Board of Education agreed, changed the entire plan, and located the building where the white parents wanted it. A few years later, the school finally opened. And then, none of them sent their kids there.
Oh my goodness gracious! That that that's that that's oh of course, um the the person who did this teamed up with Nicole Hannah Jones, the the fabulist rewriter of American history, uh and it, it let, let me listen let, 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 or just get a load of this. If you want to understand what's wrong with our public education system, you have to look at what is arguably the most powerful force in our schools: white parents. You mean white liberal parents. That that's that's your problem there. It's the white liberal parents who are the problem. Uh, the well-meaning let, let's okay, there there's another little bit. Let's listen to a little more of this. I went through this box of letters, called as many parents as I could. Not a single person actually sent their kid to the school. Not one. What happened? I remember thinking very clearly that okay, I believe in this, but I don't sort of want to sacrifice my children to it. No, as I said, I'm a Quaker, and so my kids went to the Quaker school. But you were a Quaker when you wrote this letter, asking for an yeah, integrated I, I believed in it, but... Um, and I think that we say a lot of things that are politically correct without even realizing that we are not telling exactly how we feel. So they're, they're not exposing white parents. They're exposing white progressives from New York City. And by the way, this is a history of public school education. It is white liberals who ruin things. Uh, in, in You will recall that in Massachusetts, you had Ted Kennedy and the Kennedy clan up there uh, ruthlessly working to block uh, minority children from their white schools. This isn't a phenomenon. They, they would have you believe that it is white people who are doing this. No, it is rich white progressives. But they can't tell you that. They can't single out white progressives because they need white progressives to listen to the podcast, to feel bad about themselves. But I guarantee you that throughout the course of the podcast, they'll try to point to other white parents as the problem. That's the way it always works. You know, I, I've I've got people. In, in, in my circle of acquaintances, notice I, I didn't say friends. Uh, I, I've, I've got got people who in my circle of acquaintances who genuinely believe. So here in, in Macon, where I live, we got a bunch of private schools, many of them religious oriented schools. They, you know, the, the one of the things that the left likes to tell themselves is that these private schools in the South cropped up because of desegregation. That's not actually true in most cases. In some cases it is, but in most cases it's because of prayer in school. So you have the Baptist private school, you have the Catholic private school, you have the, the Presbyterian private school, you've got the non-denominational Christian private school in, in my area. You, you've got a, a fundamentalist um, uh, Christian school in the area. And others, uh, and they all came about after prayer in public school was banned. And I know people who believe if you shut down all these private schools and forced the parents back into public schools, it would improve the public schools. They, they genuinely believe this. And many of them are people who send their kids to private school. And, and my thinking is, you go first. You, you, you say, it, it's like, listen, it, and God bless them. I, I've got some friends of mine who they send their kids to public school. They, they could afford to go to private school, but they thought, why? We want our kids to go to public school. It, and God bless them for doing that. Um, I, uh, my view is that my children can't be missional in school because my kids are still sorting out what they believe. And I don't want my kids uh, contaminated by secular culture until they've kind of locked in on what they actually believe faith-wise. I don't want my kids to be a missionary yet. I, I want them to be be trained up to be missionaries later in life. Um, but, man, to, to blame it all on white people, that's what the New York Times is doing. That is, that's as racist as 
blaming it on black people. It's just it, the racism of the New York Times and this stuff, and they feel good about themselves doing it. It is Eric Erickson here. We are about 100 days from the election. Uh, tomorrow, 100 days, the president has unveiled his newest ad. I honestly think this is my favorite Trump ad about Joe Biden. It, it hones in on what I think is Joe Biden's biggest weakness, 47 years of doing nothing. Joe Biden had 47 years in Washington. His record, higher taxes on working families, disastrous trade deals, jobs shipped to China and Mexico, manufacturing obliterated. Now Biden has a plan for $4 trillion in new taxes and amnesty for 11 million illegal immigrants, letting them compete for American jobs. Tired old liberal ideas. Joe Biden failed for 47 years. Don't let him fail again. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. Tired old liberal ideas, including massive tax increases. To talk about this and more from the Trump campaign, Mark Lauder is joining me. Mark, how are you today? I'm doing good, Eric. How are you? I'm great. I, I got to tell you, I really, I, I like this. I like this ad. I like this message. 47 years, and he's got nothing to show for it other than the same failed ideas Americans have consistently rejected. And now a, a tax increase bigger than what even Hillary Clinton proposed in 2016. It's really remarkable. And, you know, the vice president said it in a great speech earlier this week that he thought that Bernie Sanders lost their primary. But when you look at Joe Biden's policy prescriptions, it's nothing but straight out of the socialist Bernie Sanders and AOC handbook. It's tax increases, more regulations, unlimited illegal immigration. They won't even allow you to deport criminal immigrants. I mean, it's just so it's so radical. And then you add the defund the police it's something that's it's just not in touch with uh, with reality in America. Well, you know, you say that, and, and it almost seems to me like the dirty little secret on, on the Biden side and, and why, frankly, I think they got to keep him locked up is – he he's he does the the left has no loyalty to him they just hate the president and if he comes out and, and he says anything that might slight the left they may just pack up and go home and it's amazing to see a man who can't lock down his own base yeah the, his campaign really reminds me of weekend at bernie's three uh where in this case joe biden is the is the puppet and uh, bernie sanders is pulling all the strings uh, and and that is true that they I mean you've even got some of the liberals out there saying he's not gone radical enough and Bernie Sanders is out there bragging about how far to the radical extreme that they have dragged him I mean this is a man who voted to ship our jobs overseas voted to set, to give China most favored nation status and lobbied for it doesn't believe China is a threat to us and then. Now look where we are with China. I mean, this is a guy who believes we should be giving money again to the WHO. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny you should say that because one of the things I've been thinking of in the last week is if you go back to 2016 and and really even up to this year, one of the things that you hear on MSNBC a lot and CNN is that, oh, you you can't expect the president to actually change. He's old. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. And doesn't that apply to Joe Biden? The, The man has been infatuated with China for 20 years. His son has made a killing off of China. And now to think that suddenly Joe Biden's actually going to be tough on China, just it doesn't compute. No, not even a little. And as you said, the only thing that Joe Biden has ever taken from China is $1.5 billion for his son. Everything else has been a gift to China. And 
Joe Biden has the temerity to stand up and say we should be have we should have more of our manufacturing in the United States. Well, where have you been for 47 years, Joe? You shipped our jobs to China, and now all of a sudden you think it's Donald Trump's fault and you can bring them back? I mean, it's just a joke. And then, but what really concerns me is when you look at how quickly Joe Biden has gotten into the same league with the radical Democrats that have taken over Portland and Seattle and allowed Chicago and parts of Atlanta to just fall into absolute anarchy and and violence. And this defund the police movement. And you literally had the vice chair of the Democrat Party and a top elected official in Minnesota say police shouldn't be investigating rapes. Now, if that happens to your mother, to your sister, to your wife, to your daughter, to your grandchild, you're not going to have anyone to be able to call 911 and say, investigate this rape? (laughs) <laughs> you know, so so for those of you who are listening and you don't know what Mark's talking about, you actually had members of the district attorney's office in Seattle say that the Seattle police need to stop investigating and prosecuting drug-related crimes, uh, petty burglaries, and rapes. And this is expanding. And, you know, speaking of, do you have any idea why they're still rioting? It, it, it just seems like this is their only way to socially get together these days is to go burn stuff down. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a what are we like at fifty five days and counting, and we there was just a story that three federal law enforcement officers are going to be permanently blind because they were shining lasers into their eyes. They've been taking baseball bats, throwing Molotov cocktails, and trying to set the federal courthouse on fire. And Joe Biden says this is a peaceful protest. Yeah, I mean, how out of touch is he? Yeah. Well, you know, he hadn't left his basement to actually see what's going on. So maybe, maybe he's just taking their word for it. The whole thing is weird. And, you know, let, let me ask you related to this. And Biden's strategy seems to be uh, stay as far enough away from the media as possible. Don't let anybody really see him. Uh, and, and a lot of people, myself included, have interpreted that as the Democrats think the president could do could, could undo himself. It would be the president losing as opposed to Biden winning. And and I just I, I really do think there's a, a hurdle of, of truth in the Democratic strategy that when Biden is trotted out onto a debate stage, people are finally going to see that all the things we've been saying about his middle state actually are true. Well, there, that's one way. That's one way to look at it, and obviously, we will see if he can hold up on again in three debates with the president of the United States. But I also have to wonder at some point: Is America really wanting a leader whose advocacy is for hiding and cowering? Because I thought our country was built on people who faced risk, who who came across the ocean to settle a new world, who weren't settled, who weren't done on the East Coast and crossed a continent to the West Coast, who went to the moon, who also fought and went to war and sacrificed our blood and treasure on foreign lands to defend freedom. We didn't just go hide in the basement and let all those things happen around us. And I have to think, especially as we have to deal with China, as we have to deal with Iran, as we have to deal with Russia, do we want a president who's been wrong on everything over the last 40 years, foreign policy-wise? Or do we want someone who's not afraid to stand up and say, this is what America expects, and I'm willing to put my country first? 
Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Uh, it related to that, it, there's a lot of polling out there in, in swing states now. I, I think the media is, is focusing on swing states, and some of it has some some data for the president that doesn't look good. But remarkably, 56% of Americans believe that the president would have better handling on the economy. You add that to Biden's multi-trillion dollar tax increase. And it does seem to me that if we as a nation can get our handle, get the virus controlled, that the president has a remarkable path to victory on an economic growth message. Well, he always does. I mean, this is this is a president who built this economy once and he can do it again. Uh, and you contrast that with Joe Biden, who not only you know, voted for NAFTA, but led with Barack Obama the slowest recovery since the Great Depression, when you actually had to have the mainstream media talk about slow growth as the new normal or that it would take a magic wand to bring back good jobs and better paying jobs and manufacturing jobs. Donald Trump proved all those things wrong. He did it once. He can do it again. And I think as we continue to fight through this virus, as we continue to get good news on therapeutics and therapies and ultimately a vaccine, I think the American people are going to say, I like the guy who built it the first time. And I'm not going to give the keys to the guy who fumbled it the last time we gave him a shot. Well, it, it, you know, it, it, the, the data is there that the economic growth, I think it was Rush Limbaugh the other day who pointed out that the economic growth rate we're at right now is the economic growth rate of the best time of the Obama presidency, which is a, a great way to put it in perspective there. And do you really want to go backwards to go forward with Joe Biden? Right. This is about I mean, this is about your opportunity. And by the way, you know, when the first thing that Joe Biden says he's going to do is take away people's child tax credit, double, you know, increase people's taxes, put tr trillions of dollars in new taxes. That's not the way to encourage people to either spend or to go out there and invest and create new jobs. Yeah, very much so. Now, let me ask you before you get out of here. So we've got a, starting tomorrow, we, we will the wind down 100 days left in the campaign. What should we expect from the president, particularly given this this weird way everybody's got a campaign right now? Uh, what should we be looking for? Well, I think you'll see from our campaign standpoint, you will continue to see the basic blocking and tackling that, that every great winning campaign does. You know, we've registered more new Republicans around the country in 2020 than we did during all of 2016. We're contacting in state by state, and especially in those battleground states like Georgia and others, we're contacting voters faster now than we were doing at the end of 2016. So we're doing all of those things. Well, I mean, Joe Biden is still trying to hire people and put people into key states. We've had people there for, for a year. So we've wow. got all that foundation laid. We've got the financial advantage. You're starting to see those ads pop. And we'll continue to get out there. The president's going to continue to lead, and we'll get him out on the campaign trail as we can. He's got a pretty busy day job, but we'll get him out there as well. <laughs> and remember, it's a choice. Yeah. Do you well, want, okay. as the vice president said, do you want this? Do you want a opportunity and freedom, or do you want socialism in decline? All right, Mark, I, I got to throw one curveball, difficult question your way. A, on behalf of my audience, please, can, can the Trump campaign ask the RNC to, uh, enough of the text messages? <laughs> I, I got one at 6 o'clock this morning. <laughs> I will pass along the message. I appreciate it. Man, listen, uh, 100 days left. Uh, I, I know it's, it's going to be a sprint to the finish. It's been a marathon along the way. Thank you very much for stopping by, and best of luck to you these next 100 days. Look forward to being back, Eric.
Thank you very much. Mark Lauder with the Trump campaign. Y'all, I literally at six o'clock this morning, I got another message from the RNC claiming that it was President Trump texting me at six o'clock this morning. And could I please uh, contribute money? I I continue to get these and it's just it it's it's driving everybody. Crazy. I don't know a Republican who is happy right now with the text messaging. Uh, it's just, it's, it's driving everybody insane. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go on and take a, a time out and reset when we come back. Cause we've got other stuff to talk about, including the, the wall street journal editorial page is coming out swinging against the wall street journal. I'll explain. This is fantastic news. That's just being reported. Uh, remember Nick Sandman, Nicholas Sandman. He is the, uh, now I guess young adult. Uh, was a teen, he went to Washington for the March for Life and was confronted by the American Indian protester banging the drum. And he just stood there as that guy approached and, and had a grin on his face, was polite to the guy. And the media accused him of blocking uh, the protester's path, which wasn't true. They attacked him, claimed he was a racist. Uh, dragged him through the mud while he filed lawsuits against the Washington Post, CNN, ABC News, CBS News, the New York Times, Gannett, Rolling Stone. Well, CNN and the Washington Post are settling with him. It was a $250 million defamation lawsuit against them all. They've settled. The terms are undisclosed. Today is his birthday, and the Washington Post has decided to join CNN in settlement. Good, uh, good, good, good. They deserve to. This, this, is, this was one of the most annoying things. They dragged that kid through the mud. They defamed him. They slandered him. They called him all sorts of things. They misrepresented the law, what what had happened. And, and to be clear here, the original footage that came out was selectively edited to put him in the worst possible light, and it was done at the Washington Post. It made it appear that he was blocking the path of an American Indian protester at the March for Life. And Nick Sandman was wearing his Make America Great Again cap along with his friends. They were from Covington Catholic, a private school in Kentucky. And they 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 framed it. The media framed it. The Washington Post and then CNN and all these others framed it as he was a, a bigot, a, tr- a Trump racist blocking the path of this protester, being rude and smirking. And when the full vo- uh, video footage came out, it was him and his classmates who were trying to move, and it was their path that was being blocked. And they were being super polite, and it turned out the media had badly mischaracterized. The Washington Post tried to scramble and change things. Uh, CNN stopped talking about it. Well, he filed a lawsuit against all of them, and he's winning the lawsuits through settlement. They they doubled down and said that this was this was going to be uh, completely different, and and they weren't gonna they weren't gonna be bullied by this kid. And the thing that really was troubling to me is that no one in America knew who this kid was until this story. And then the argument by the members of the press he was suing was that he had become famous because of his actions. And therefore, because he was famous, uh, the, they couldn't he couldn't sue for defamation. The media essentially made the kid famous by attacking him and then said, well, now that he's famous, he's got to prove maliciousness in in the lawsuit. So just so that you understand, under First Amendment law in this country, if you're a person of note in this country and someone says something bad about you, you've got to prove a malicious intent. It can't just be wrong. There's got to be maliciousness there. If you're not a famous person in this country, and the the media says something bad or someone defames you, someone lies about you, uh, then you've just got to show that what they did was uh, they, they defamed you. They, they lied about you.
And what the media argued with him is that he was famous and therefore he had to prove maliciousness. And his counter argument was they made him, the media made him famous by attacking him maliciously. And he's winning by settling. And that's good. The, the media over the last four years, and here's the thing. I talk to reporters all the time. And these reporters do not recognize that they themselves are undermining their own credibility. They, they really think that their cause is noble. It's very much like every once in a while you encounter reporters who will claim that the First Amendment is for them. You occasionally encounter reporters who believe that the freedom of the press and the First Amendment is only for reporters. It's not for you and me. And that's not true. Uh, the freedom of the press is for all of us. We all have the ability to petition our government. We all have the ability to tell the stories of what's happening in government. It's not just for designated press organizations or people who are hired and put on payrolls as reporters. And they would have you believe otherwise, which is a deeply problematic thing because it entitles them to a level of arrogance they don't deserve. And increasingly, we're seeing them that arrogance play out across the side. Now, something else that's happening out there, and it's very much to the chagrin of the press, is that the president has decided to start having his uh, coronavirus briefings again. And one of the things the president is doing this time is he's not having freewheeling conferences that last for two hours. He's They're typically 30 minutes now, and the media is now blasting him for doing that. And they're blasting him for this. you got, you got to listen to this comment from the president. From his briefing yesterday... The media is upset with this. Where are we with the vaccine, the therapeutics, how soon? And do you uh, I'm want sorry, I, I phrased this one wrong. This was him with Hannity last night. He said the same thing in the press briefing. The press is mad about this. Where are we with the vaccine, the therapeutics, how soon? And do you want every American, if they can't socially distant, to wear the mask? I selfishly want baseball and football to open so we can go, and I also want to protect grandmas and grandpas. I'd like to see everybody, if they can't spread, if they can't have, be socially uh, distant, then I think they should probably put it on. And even if it's, uh, let's say it's a 50% chance or 25 because again, people, these same experts were saying don't wear it at one point. Now they're saying wear it. So let's go with them. What difference does it make? we got to get rid of this thing. So let's say they're right, and let's say there's a 50% chance or a 25% chance. We're not going to lose with it. You're not going to lose with it, so do it. But again, as I said, I really think you're going to have some uh, answers very, very soon on uh, therapeutics and also on vaccines. These companies, I'm dealing with them directly. I'm getting reports directly. They're very far advanced. They've already started testing. The media is mad that the president is now urging people to wear masks. Think about that for a minute. For weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, the media, I, myself, others have said wear masks. The president's now coming out saying put on a mask. And now the media is attacking him for saying it. Why didn't you say it a month ago? There, there's really no measure. You know, I, I mentioned this yesterday. A preacher friend of mine and I have been texting back and forth about this, that the most annoying trend in American media landscape right now is that the media runs stories and says has experts on who say do X, Y, and Z. Uh, the president does it, and then they attack him for not doing it soon enough as opposed to commending him for doing it. There's just, there's no way to win with them. Uh, there's also no way to win on education. 
Today, I want to provide an update on the actions we're taking to support the safe reopening of America's schools. Parents around the world who have had their children home for the last few months have a greater appreciation for the fact that teachers are essential workers, that they're essential to our children's future. And he wants people to go back to school to have physical interaction with teachers. And most parents do too, and they're nervous and they want to make sure that everybody's safe. And I, part of me just thinks that there's a fear factor out there in the press. There are problems, don't get me wrong, and we've got to be careful about how we do it. But I really do think that there's a fear factor out there in the media right now uh, trying to make people more nervous than they should be about the data. You know, you can live your life, wash your hands, wear a mask, socially distance and avoid getting the virus. And the headlines these days make it seem like not only is everybody going to get it and we're all going to die, but your kids are going to spread it to everybody if they go back to school, which isn't true.